Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. There has been a reassessment in Western science and knowledge on multiple fronts that has been developing for some time. One reassessment has occurred with the development of relativity in quantum physics. This has produced a much more dynamic and fluid understanding of matter, the laws of nature, and the universe, rather than the mechanical models following Newton. Process philosophy and the dynamic concepts of Eastern cultures, such as the yin and yang, are reshaping how we think about reality. A second reassessment has come since the white male supremacy that is a part of the legacy of arrogant European colonialism is being called into account. With this reckoning has been a challenge to the superiority of its Western forms of knowledge. The consequence has been the reevaluation of traditional and indigenous knowledge. As the limits of modern Western science has been brought into focus, so has the limits of modern Western medicine. Practices that were on the margins or dismissed have now been seen to have value. People are seeking and finding help in alternative forms of treatment. But with these treatments comes questions, including ethical questions. My guest today is Dr. Jeanette Engelbrecht. Dr. Engelbrecht is a traditional Chinese medicine and complementary and alternative medicine practitioner who offers services with an integrative approach. She also has a strong background in Western cancer care and specializes in oncology. Jeanette is here to help us understand more fully these alternatives to Western medicine and to discuss with us some of the ethical issues related to their use. Well, welcome, Jeanette. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Well, let's begin by uh, letting you kind of clarify some terms for us. What is traditional Chinese medicine and complementary and alternative medicine? Okay. Well, starting with complementary and alternative medicine, which I'll refer to as CAM going forward, I feel like CAM is basically kind of any modality that just falls outside of Western mainstream healthcare. So this can include all sorts of things that range from acupuncture to homeopathy to aromatherapy, mindful movement, uh, meditation practices, colonic irrigation. Like it kind of encompasses all of the things that just aren't typically provided by Western mainstream healthcare providers. And then traditional Chinese medicine, I'll refer to as TCM going forward. Um, definitely counts as a CAM modality. However, it is its own entire medical system. And I, I think that in addition to TCM, Ayurveda is kind of a popular system in the United States as well, which counts as kind of, again, a CAM therapy, but it's a standalone entire, you know, medical system. Um, and yeah, that's what I would say is the difference between the two. Well, now, what was the last one you mentioned? I had not heard of that one. Ayurveda is like the um, East Indian traditional ancient lineage of medicine. So you hear people like yoga is kind of born from the Indian tradition, as well as um, certain types of nutritional practices 
and herbal medicine practices that people are seeking those practitioners out in this country um, more so than they have in the past, you know, 50 years. Okay. Well, how did you, what's your journey that led you into this and uh, not only just practicing, but, you know, to get a doctorate in it? Okay. Well, when I finished high school, my original plan was to go to college and then go to law school. And I was really intent on being a lawyer. And I just had finished school a little early and I was nervous about being the youngest in the law school class. So I took a little time off. And during that time, I realized that I actually didn't want to be a lawyer. And I was way more drawn to medicine. And so I ended up going to school to become a radiation therapist, which is somebody that works with um, people who have cancer, helping to be a part of their cancer team. And I was working at a world-class cancer care facility out on the West Coast. And we were doing cases that were extremely rare and very complicated. We were fortunate enough to have a whole arsenal of tools at our disposal because we were a research facility. But with that came just a lot of sadness, I would say. Additionally, um, a lot of the patients that came through, you know, they have to quit their job in order to attend to their own cancer care. I saw people getting divorced, um, caregivers in the family that it would cause giant rifts, different things like that were going on. Um, people would get divorced um, because the cost of cancer care in the time of Western conventional cancer care is just extremely expensive and it's extremely time consuming. And so in addition to having a term, uh, not necessarily terminal illness, but a really chronic illness, people's entire lives were being affected financially, emotionally, in relationships. And it was hard for me to really um, know how to manage how that was affecting me specifically. Like I would find myself being really sad or being really low or being really depressed or feeling um, like I couldn't shake the story of a certain family that was on treatment for a certain amount of time. And it was really affecting my stress level. Um, I guess, you know, I would consider myself a little bit empathic. And so it was just like, I felt like I was taking on a lot of what was going on around me instead of being able just to effectively treat somebody and kind of leave their story at the door. And I'm sure that there's some um, discussion around people that can and can't do that when it comes to healthcare, like if it's good for them to be able to deflect that or if it's better for them to really feel it. At any rate, so I was seeing a lot of people affected with cancer just being affected in really crazy ways. And additionally, my mother received a terminal cancer diagnosis. And she had had um, her original diagnosis about seven years prior. However, my mother didn't tell me that she had the second diagnosis. And partly why is because she knew how anxious and, and kind of sad and difficult it was for me to already deal with the patient load that I had and kind of all of their um, experiences. And when I found out that my mother basically had a month to live, and that she hadn't told me because of all of this, it really rocked my world and had me evaluating like what kind of practitioner I am, what kind of person I am, and what am I bringing to myself and to other people in that regard. One of the beautiful things about my mother's diagnosis that I found out later 
is that she found a lot of solace in taking part in alternate like cam modalities. She was really into her watercolor class. She would go to yoga. She had a meditation class. These were all things that she felt were very nurturing to her through her cancer care. And that made a big impression on me, not only because she's my mom, but because she was a fairly prolific nurse practitioner at the university in the area that I grew up in. And she had a lot of respect and she was, you know, a biomedicine practitioner. She wrote pharmacology textbooks, different things like that. But uh, what she spoke of when she spoke of her treatments was really about um, all of these CAM modalities. So... I, in an interesting turn of events, I was offered to take over the entire radiation therapy department and basically be the manager, which would have been an, an, a really awesome career move and, you know, pretty amazing. And when I thought it over, my decision was to actually quit radiation therapy and to do something else. I felt like if I kept doing that, I would be extremely unhappy and live this life full of stress because I just wasn't able to mitigate my feelings and the sadness that I felt for the people that I was treating. So I was going to go to midwifery school and I thought, man, welcoming babies in is going to be way better than seeing so many people die. And through just the sort of weird um, sequence of events that ended up not working out, even though I had sold my house and moved to a different state to go to school. And so when I start to reevaluate, like, what are the things that I could do instead? Chinese medicine is what kept popping out for me. I'd always been interested in herbal medicine. I'd been seeing an acupuncturist for myself. Um, I had a friend that was in acupuncture school. And the more that we talked, the more I was like, that's really what I need to be doing. And it seems like everything has aligned for that to happen. So flash forward, <laughs> I went, I moved to Asheville, North Carolina to attend Chinese medicine school. And I was fortunate enough to be in the first cohort where they could offer a doctorate and a master's at the same time. So it really made, to me, it made sense because I have such a, <laughs> an enormous amount of schooling that I felt like it just made sense to find, to go for the doctorate also. But, um, Chinese medicine school changed my life in a, in a bunch of different ways that I wasn't expecting. And when they first tell you about Chinese medicine school, they'll tell you that. But you can't really understand what that means until you've gone through the process. And the biggest reason is because Chinese medicine isn't just a philosophy. It's an entire lifestyle. And Chinese medicine is really based on the observations of nature and patterns that we can see every day before us, like seasonal patterns, daily patterns, rhythms, all those sorts of things. And you just get so plugged into thinking that way and noticing things in that way that it really changes your life. And what I, what I came out with that changed me the most that I definitely wasn't expecting was the ability to start to handle the energetic stuff that I was really struggling with as a radiation therapist. So I kind of have the belief that if I were to go back to radiation therapy now and have the same kind of caseload, that I wouldn't be as destroyed <laughs> by it um, because I have learned more effectively how to like manage my spiritual self and my emotions through Chinese medicine. Why do you think folks are turning to this more, this option more? 
Well, I think that that's happening for a few reasons. I think probably the one that a lot of people can relate to most immediately is that the, I don't want to say the discovery, but kind of the discovery that big pharma isn't all it's um, cracked up to be. There's been like, you know, kind of some exposés and documentaries. And most recently there was a, a show on Hulu called Dope Sick that really um, expounded on Oxycontin problem in this country and how it kind of came to be and who the players were and who's making money from Oxycontin addiction and Oxycontin treatment. And so um, as people are discovering that big pharma isn't necessarily what it's cracked up to be, um, they're looking for alternatives. Um, you know, people are seeing physician get getting kickbacks, um, people making tons of money that are just in the boardrooms. They're seeing um, people getting denied insulin and epinephrine, for example, or astronomical prices for those drugs. And people are literally dying because they don't have access. And it's not a problem of access. It's a problem of the people controlling the access through money. And so I feel like that's a big driver in people seeking alternative care. Also, people don't want to go to a doctor and just have a pill to fix a symptom. They really want to be well from the inside out. So they want the root of the problem fixed, which I think in biomedicine isn't always the case. Um, and then another really big thing is that people aren't feeling listened to by their healthcare practitioners. I hear that over and over again in the clinic, that they went to their doctor and they told them these things and there hasn't been follow-up, there hasn't been appropriate, um, there hasn't been appropriate ways to address what they're concerned about and then additionally, the pandemic um, has kind of shaped, changed the way that healthcare is moving forward. And a lot of procedures get canceled. There's a lot of healthcare provider burnout. There's less available staff. They're having to triage things in a little bit of a different way. And that's just unfortunately making people trust um, Western providers a little bit less. And so I think we're seeing an influx of people coming into CAM um, modalities because they just need someone they can trust. Well, tell us about, I mean, cause as you described it in some of the materials you sent to me, um, that traditional Chinese medicine, as you, as you talked about as a lifestyle, which means that the components of therapy tend to work more in a flowing system. Yes. Uh, which is different from Western treatment. So, kind of help us understand that a little more. Okay. Well, in TCM, basically we start out with a very extensive interview. I think when new patients come to me, they can expect to spend 30 minutes to an hour kind of discussing their entire health history, starting with their chief complaint, but really, you know, kind of touching everything. Um, getting that extensive interview in really kinds of helps us to refine what we call our diagnosis, which is basically like what kind of patterns we see in these people that are codified and kind of organized in a Chinese medicine way. And that helps us to identify what the root of the problem can be. And then we can manage symptoms and fix the root kind of in the order that needs to happen so that people can get rebalanced. In addition to the interview, we use tongue and pulse diagnosis, which gives us more information regarding the state of fluids in the body and basically kind of more information about what the organs and organ energetics are expressing. 
And when we use the interview in conjunction with the tongue and the pulse and what we see, we can create a treatment plan for somebody that includes things like acupuncture, herbal medicine, nutrition modifications, addition of mindful movement, um, and those sorts of things. So basically, two people can come in with the exact same Western medicine diagnosis, but they'll have a different acupuncture treatment, different herbal medicine, different nutrition guidelines, different kinds of meditation, things that we suggest, because they're two different people with two completely different life histories, with two completely different health histories. And so it's not the same thing that's going to work for two people. And we can monitor how people are doing as they come in to see us and see what symptoms are changing or how they're feeling better or what sorts of things are changing for them. Okay. Did I answer the rest of your question? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how do these medicines work in partnership? I think that Western medicine and TCM can work brilliantly together. And in fact, I think if you're fortunate enough to be able to have a Western and a CAM or TCM provider, you're kind of in the best case scenario. Um, you know, I, as a Chinese medicine practitioner, can't really prescribe antibiotics. I can't order imaging. I can't perform surgery. All of those things are extremely helpful in informing how a treatment plan goes forward. And these aren't you know, tools that were accessible to the ancient people where my lineage developed from, but because we have them now, they're pretty awesome to use adjunctly. Um, I think that, you know, using CAM and TCM is really great for helping to mitigate the side effects for some really chronic stuff like cancer care. Uh, in TCM, I could theoretically treat somebody primarily for cancer care, but we would have cytotoxic herbal medicinals that, you know, would be hard on the body like chemotherapy is, for example. Um, but we can, with my kind of treatments and the way that um, the tools that I have available to me, I can really help make the side effects of those Western treatments like chemotherapy and radiation and surgery be a lot less um, difficult. Okay. Okay. Well, what are, because you spoke of um, energetic bodies and energetic modalities. Yeah. Uh, so, what are those? <laughs> yeah, what is that is probably the question, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, the human body consists of kind of different layers of energies that are kindly kind of widely accepted, you know, one of them being the physical body and the physical body has our weight, our shape, our volume. We can touch it, see it. We can contemplate um, its reflection in the mirror, all those sorts of things. But then there's all these other layers to us. Like sometimes you'll hear the word aura or energy field. Um, really what that means to me is we're talking about the emotional energy, which is kind of this layer of energy that exists around us where our feelings and our fears kind of reside. This layer can be volatile depending on what emotions we're experiencing, if we're high or if we're low. And then we also have this like spiritual energy body, um, which is kind of the place where our consciousness or maybe our higher awareness lives. And this layer ties us to like the universal consciousness as well like our feelings of pain or or joy or suffering for things that are going on at, like with the global humanity 
Um, and in TCM, our energy body and our physical body are interconnected. They're, they're two different things, but they're not, in, they are inseparable. Um, and the way that this is kind of all connected is through the meridians or the channels. And anybody that's had acupuncture or had a TCM experience knows that we'll talk about like the, the heart meridian or the gallbladder meridian. And these meridians, although they are related to the organ themselves, are independent from the organ. So if I say that there's an imbalance in the heart, that doesn't mean that the heart as an organ has a physical problem. It means that the energetics of the heart meridian have some sort of imbalance. Um, something that is related to the heart in Chinese medicine is joy, but on on one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, that can look like mania. So we use the meridians to help encourage the balance of our energetics. But you know, each of us is kind of comprised of of a different mix of all of the energetics. So it's just kind of working with each individual and their energetic body in order to help them with their psycho-spiritual stuff, their mental-emotional stuff, and their physical stuff, since it's all interrelated. Okay. I think that's a big difference between uh, TCM and Western biomedicine practitioners, even though, you know, I don't think that there's a doctor that I've met that disagrees that there's an energetic body. It's just they maybe don't have a way to explain it. Well, you also talk about, uh, I guess, one of the significant differences um, is uh, with Western medicine is related to nutrition. Yeah, that is, I think, the biggest difference between TCM and Western medicine. And partly it's because of the way that TCM looks at digestion itself um, and like appropriate food combining and energetics. So when I, when I, when TCM talks about nutrition, we're not talking about like macro minerals or micro minerals. Uh, we're not talking about calories and carbs and fats and proteins. We're talking about the dynamics of food. We're talking about the thermostatic effects of food. If it's hot, if it's cold and what that matters to the body, we're talking about the directionality of food. Does it have a descending energetic or is it a, a raising energetic? We're talking about um, the yin and yang of the food. We're talking about where it grows and what it looks like, what color it is. There's a whole bunch of different things that basically, if you understand food in that way, you can look at a food and kind of go, this is this pea, this pea vine grows up, it fruits here, it's green and it's compact. And so I know that it's going to help the liver because the liver likes to ascend and spread out and green is associated with the wood element, for example. So when we're talking about, you know, nutrition, we're talking about this like really dynamic food situation. Um, and then digestion is like the other piece about that. And even though Western medicine, of course, like addresses digestion, especially if people have indigestion, um, but we just look at digestion as a totally different piece. We look at the foods needing to be hot. We don't like ice water. We want uh, people to have, you know, enough hydrating foods to nourish their yin substances. We don't want things to be too drying. We need things to move down so that we can eliminate properly. There's just a whole different lens about looking at nutrition and food, including the methods for preparation that, you know, are just seen totally differently in Western medicine. I find it really interesting that in the original translation of the Hippocratic Oath, they talk about diet specifically, 
as being something to modify to help people like basically resolve their illnesses. And Hippocrates was very big into nutrition and movement as the major form of helping to heal his patients. And in the modern translations that our MDs are now taking, they don't actually include that dietetic piece. So I, you know, I definitely find that to be an interesting, um, just something interesting to note, I guess, about uh, Western medicine and nutrition. And additionally, when I was in graduate school, I had to interview several MDs. And one of the questions that I asked almost all of them is, what is your nutrition training like? Most of them say they don't really have a lot of nutrition training. The hospitalists will have like prescriptive diets for people that are in, you know, post heart attack or with diabetes or whatever. But, you know, they kind of look at the food pyramid or the colors on your plate should be in this kind of divided way. But um, Chinese medicine just does not look at that that way at all. We look at the person, their constitutional factors, the foods that are available to them and what kinds of imbalances are going on so that we can help through diet correct those imbalances. Well, in addition to being a practitioner, um, you have had a special interest in the issues of ethics. Yes. And you are, um, are co-authoring a book with Dr. Kathy Robinson uh, about uh, ethics and uh, CAM and TCM. Mm-hmm. Talk with us about that a little bit. What are the ethical issues uh, that bear on what you're doing? Gotcha. Well, I think that the ethics portion of of what I'm doing really comes from my undergraduate work in philosophy and wanting to be pre-law. Interestingly enough, um, my senior project was on biomedical ethics. And so it kind of maybe was a good foreshadowing for what I was going to do later. But um, TCM has kind of this added responsibility of ethical consideration because we are not the norm. Culturally, people aren't used to using TCM as their um, major medical practice, and the nomenclature that we use and the verbology that we use isn't familiar to people. Um, MDs are very smart, and they work very, very hard, but they aren't trained in our language, and therefore are more apt to say no to something because they just don't understand it. Not because they're not open to it, or don't, you know, may they may even think it will work, but because they just haven't read the studies and they aren't familiar with the language and they don't know um, all the specifics, then it becomes kind of the onus of the TCM practitioner to kind of have to, I guess the word would be defend all of the things that we do and that we're prescribing. And I think that that's very different from what Western medicine practitioners are dealing with. Um, in relationship to cancer care specifically, because actually cancer care followed me out of Western cancer care. I am an oncology specialist now. Um, there's, a, there's a few um, nuances, like one of them is with herbal medicine. Um, when it comes to like a terminal diagnosis, herbal medicine prescription gets a little more flexible because doctors are typically willing to let patients do whatever they want that gives them relief. But if they're in like more early stage of their illness, um, that is not the case. And in radiation therapy and in chemotherapy, they really don't want you to take antioxidants and vitamins. They don't want anything that's going to potentially counteract what's going on with the um, services that they're providing. And so um, 
that is an ethical consideration that we need to take into mind. Another thing is that if a patient comes in and primarily wants TCM for cancer care, that is a huge deal. Um, you know, to refuse conventional cancer care causes a lot of problems in a family, um, with your doctor, etc. And so if someone comes in seeking primary cancer care, honestly, I wouldn't encourage that. I'm not saying that I'm going to encourage them to do the biomedical cancer care, but there's just a whole bunch of legal ramifications to if they refuse all of that. Um, it would be my responsibility to chart very thoroughly the that I have talked to the patient about their decision to really outline what the patient's reasoning is to make sure that I believe that they're kind of in right mind to make those decisions. And if, if anything comes up with the families or with an attorney to have all of that information readily available is super important because people don't understand TCM because it's not the cultural norm. And so if something goes awry, there's a, a very good chance that, um, us as practitioners get looked to as part of the problem. So that's kind of an interesting uh, ethical consideration for us TCM practitioners. Um, well, you also talk about um, the um, kind of guiding principles uh, relating, and there seems to be an overlap here uh, with traditional Chinese medicine and Western medicine uh, about those principles in, in, um, dealing with patients? Yeah. I, you know, when I thought about this, they really are similar. I mean, we, you know, as TCM practitioners, we also take an oath that's, you know, similar in ideas to the Hippocratic oath. And so the idea is that you're going to, you know, not do any harm. You're going to do the best that you can for the patient to the best of your abilities. Um, I don't, you know, I think that there are outliers, um, within any group or any philosophical kind of uh, theory. Um, and so when it comes to unethical practices, that's just going to be hit or miss dependent on the practitioner and doesn't really have to do with like which particular um, school of thought they prescribe to. Okay. So you said you're, you're an oncologist, you specialize in oncology. Yeah. Um, so give a, give us an understanding uh, kind of in particular uh, about um, how, how that treatment goes, uh, how you enter into that process, uh, and then uh, how the ethical issues uh, bear upon that. Okay. Well, I think most often for me, when I um, end up with someone coming to my office that is an oncology patient, the things that they're looking to me for help for are nutrition, um, pain, and nausea, and neuropathy. Uh, complaints. So a lot of times it's the side effects of the chemo and the radiation that people are seeking um, relief from. So when they come to me, we do an evaluation based on where they're at in their treatment, uh, kind of where they're at constitutionally and all of that kind of stuff. And then we do acupuncture, herbal medicine, what have you, in order to help them get relief. Uh, nutrition stuff can come into play. There's a certain type of diet, for example, that's a vegan reduced calorie keto diet that given in a certain protocol can really help mitigate the side effects of Western cancer care by up to 80%. In that situation, it's a real kind of ethical dilemma because um, Western cancer providers are really about getting in calories and they're not really looking at what the calories consist of. 
Um, not every provider, of course, but across the board, most providers are that way. So I would hear constantly the nurses say to my patients in radiation therapy, like, oh, on your way home, get a Wendy's Frosty and some French fries. You just need to eat. You need calories. You need sustenance. Well, in my view, sugar feeds tumors. Also, eating ice cream isn't good for your digestion. Like all of these different things that will actually help um, to hinder the process of your body's innate wisdom to heal. And so um, if, you know, if I prescribe this sort of reduced calorie vegan keto diet to somebody that's in the throes of like, you know, their chemo regimen, I will get pushback oftentimes from a practitioner or from their nurse, for example, saying that, you know, they really just need calories. It, it doesn't matter what they're eating. They just need the calories. And that's something that I completely disagree with. I think that if we're feeding the tumor in the situation, then we need to remove those triggers. And if, you know, fasting has been done for thousands of years across cultures, um, but that's a, that's a hard sell, <laughs> you know, in modern cancer care right now, for example. Well, um, if a person chooses to go with you instead of Western care uh, at the beginning of their diagnosis. Uh, what's that process like? Well, you know, it's, it's not something I completely encourage because I, like I said, it's just um, causes kind of a lot of issues when somebody refuses Western medical care. Not that I'm saying I want them to get Western medical care, but I definitely want them to be seen by a Western provider, at least for a workup. Um, if they, if they really just refuse all conventional care and they just want to work with me, like I, like I kind of mentioned before, there's a lot of detailed and specific charting that has to take place in case that my records are ever summoned in the court of law or, you know, if the, if there's an issue with the family, for example, but otherwise, um, it's just treating, you know, from my perspective, what imbalance it is that has caused the cancer to happen, and then working with the individual to really manage the symptoms that they're having. Okay. Well, how does this um, option uh, relate to a person's spirituality? Well, that's another big difference between TCM and biomedicine. Uh, TCM looks at the person as a whole. It's a, it's a super holistic medicine. And because we have this energy body and the spiritual body, um, it all comes together. Chinese medicine is fantastic for treating psycho-spiritual stuff. The uh, acupuncture helps to really regulate the parasympathetic nervous system. It can really help to um, manage different kinds of mental emotional issues like bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, um, just with the needling. In addition, we have, you know, herbal medicine and some nutrition and mindful movement that we can add to, you know, enrich the whole treatment program. But using the meridians that are energetically connected to the organs, then we can really access the whole body. And maybe a way to kind of think about this is even, you know, the gallbladder is one of the organ meridians that exists in Chinese medicine. Even though you may have had your gallbladder removed, you still have all of the energetics that are associated with the gallbladder meridian still running the course of your body. So you may not have the physical organ bile production, for example, but the different things that relate to the gallbladder meridian are still, you know, happening for you and can be in or out of balance. Well, I know that, like, um, in martial arts, um, there is a kind of a tension 
with the notion that to be a true martial artist, you have to kind of buy into the Eastern spirituality. Uh, and with that may come uh, Confucianism or Buddhism uh, that Christians then find kickback on, you know, that they, uh, they, they shy away from engaging in something like that because they feel like that in order to embrace this, I also have to kind of compromise my Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that, how does that factor in? What are you experiencing uh, relating to that? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I, I would say that Taoism, which is the philosophy that Chinese medicine kind of resides under, is not incompatible with Christianity at all. Um, in my view, Taoism is more of like a, a lifestyle guide, a way to live your life in accordance with the patterns of nature and doesn't really have any, oh, I don't want to say any morality attached to it because there is the idea of like having a moral compass, but the moral compass really is kind of driven by being in accordance with the laws of nature. And so there isn't this idea of, even though there's yin and yang, which can relate to right and wrong and dark and light and kind of gives us the vision that there's two opposing forces. Um, it's not really, it's not really a moral compass that guides your decision-making processes in the way that kind of we think about how religions do that in this Western world. Um, Hinduism and Buddhism, I feel like are a little bit more, of a religion than even though they are kind of lifestyles also than Taoism. I feel like Taoism is kind of separate from that in the fact that it is just really more about um, the patterns of nature. Okay. Um, well, in, in particular relating to the, the cancer uh, issues, uh, you also deal with end of life. Yeah. Uh, situations. Um, how does, how does what you do relate to that? Well, um, so for what I do for end of life care, you know, it can be done at the home. It can be done in a regular hospice facility. It can be done in the hospital, but it's similar in a way to Western kind of end of life care only, you know, I don't have the access to prescribe any kind of comfort meds or what have you, but Think that um, for TCM practitioners, it's pretty multifaceted as far as like we can help control pain, um, but really we can provide spiritual, mental, and social support for the dying patient, um, and that is going to be based on each in the patient, each patient's individual beliefs and goals and wishes for their end of life care. But I, I mean, I really look at my role as supporting the dying patient as in their spiritual, emotional, and physical body um, in a way that's meaningful and productive for them. We talked about um, the importance of um, beginning where a patient is. Yeah, we like to say that we want to meet the patient where they're at in Chinese medicine. So if someone comes to me and I, you know, we do the interview and we kind of talk about the things that they would like to work on, um, maybe nutrition is going to be the best piece for them. But maybe they're not somebody that knows how to cook vegetables, or maybe they're not somebody that even likes to cook, or maybe there's somebody that's been drinking soda every day for 50 years and they don't really want to give that up. 
Um, so instead of saying, well, you have to cut this out and cut this out and cut this out, I would just kind of work on a plan for them that still allowed them to enjoy the things that they enjoy, but incorporated other good choices. Uh, I know that sounds like a very like simple example, but that's, you know, I think a really big one. People will come in and say, Hey, I'm on this medication. I have no intention of going off. It works for me. I like it. I still need your help. Or, Hey, I'm coming in here and I know that I need to lose weight or I need to get my blood sugar down or whatever, but I'm not willing to change these three things about my diet. Well, for me, that's a good thing to know because I can meet them where they're at and I can help them come up with a plan that assists them on their healing journey that still allows them to um, do the things that they, that they want to do or that they don't want to do. Well, no, when it comes to costs, uh, relating to medical care and that that's a big issue, uh, with, with everybody, uh, then that factors in with insurance, mm -hmm. uh, and, and insurance covering those kind of things. How does, how does that factor in with you all? Where does, where does, insurance come into all this well you know at, at this point in time it depends on where you live in this country on the west coast for example when i was there 10 years ago um it's pretty standard as an insurance like you know an employee provided insurance that you get chiropractic care and, and acupuncture care maybe like 12 to 20 sessions per year that are covered um here in the Southeast, that's typically not the case. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be a VA, or I actually am still a VA community care provider. And so the veterans are actually getting approved insurance coverage for acupuncture and chiropractic. But um, you're right, that's a piece that's kind of limiting for people right now. Uh, providers, you know, you'll it's across the board with TCM practitioners. You'll see some practitioners that are a couple hundred dollars an hour. You'll see other practitioners that run completely um, community style clinics where people just pay a sliding scale and they come as they are and they work with what they have. And so, um, I guess, you know, if you're on the West coast, it's a lot easier to seek out complementary and alternative care because it's kind of covered. Um, additionally, like as a TCM doctor on the West coast, I could be considered a primary care provider, but that is not the case here in the South. Well, does a particular insurance company act differently according to the state they're in so that an insurance provider will cover something in California, but yes. since North Carolina doesn't require it, then yeah. they don't cover it in North Carolina. Absolutely. And I, I'm finding this to be true with Blue Cross Blue Shield just between Tennessee and North Carolina. Um, it's definitely state specific and policy specific. Some people are able to like, you know, submit a, a super bill claim and maybe they'll get some money back or they can at least pay for their acupuncture with a health savings account or a flex account. So at least saves them a little bit of money with the pre-tax dollars. But yeah, it totally depends on where you live, the politics of that state, who's in office, what's going on. Um, and it's ever changing. In fact, the VA system went from you know, one region had Optum as, or TriWest as their payer to Optum as their payer. And that changed a lot of things for the providers. Um, and then people have to make the decision if they want to still see VA patients or what other kind of insurance patients based on their levels of reimbursement and basically hassle. Okay. Well, as a final question then, uh, what do you want else for my audience to know? I want your audience to know that TCM is out there and that it, and that they're, you know, as a TCM practitioner, I suggest you go see any other TCM practitioner. We're, you know, all on the same team 
And we're just trying to promote this medicine because it does offer a good adjunct technique to current biomedicine practices. And it offers a good alternative for certain things, for pain control, for psychosocial, emotional support, all those sorts of things. But there is this whole other system of medicine that exists that's available to us in this country. And I, um, if you're struggling with something that just hasn't been solved by a Western practitioner that you, you, know, you just can't get anywhere with, maybe you should go see a TCM practitioner and, what, and maybe they'd be able to assist you in getting a little bit further down your healing journey. Just because we have different tools, we have different access and we have different knowledge. And like I said, when you combine the two together, you can get pretty beautiful results. So I just, I feel like if you're able to have um, the resources to have a, an Eastern practitioner, it's just going to serve your highest good even more. Well, do you have a title for your book yet? Um, I believe that Dr. Robinson does, and I'm not sure what it is. I'm just one of the contributing authors. Um, but what's exciting about this book is that it'll be the first ethics specific book for acupuncture slash TCM practitioners, I think ever. Okay. Do you know approximately when it's going to come out? No, I know that she tested the material, I think with the last two classes that came through. And I do believe that it's getting published, but I don't think it'll come to the fall, but I don't have any specifics. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, but when it does, I can add that to my, to my site. Awesome. Uh, you know, I, I can go back and add that. Well, you've been uh, a, very helpful in helping us understand this uh, and uh, giving us insight uh, both into the, just the nature of it in general, but also into relating to the ethical issues that are involved in that. And uh, so thank you uh, for today and for being with us. Well, and I would like to extend my gratitude for the invitation to be on my very first ever podcast interview. And you have definitely made this easy for my frazzled nerves. And I appreciate your audience for taking the time to listen. All right. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b-l-u-b-r-r-y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth.